nice things for me personally about um, practicing meditation in Burma and also assisting at teaching in Burma is uh, I feel held in uh, a sense of the tradition, a sense of the culture where in that same place, meditation, just like we're doing here, has been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years in a culture that, for whatever its faults, and there are many, um, really supports and venerates the Dhamma, the Dharma, meditation practice. And it's so uh, different, really, to be putting out this courageous effort, this sincere, you know, it takes a lot of work doing what you're doing here. And it's really different to be... (laughs) We don't tape stuff there either. (laughs) It's really different to be doing it in a culture where the chance cab driver you meet, when they say, why are you here? And you say, I come to meditate. They go, wow, that's so wonderful. I really want to meditate, but I'm having to take care of my mother, but it's really what I want to do. That's more the normal response. And... You know, I don't even realize how much, I'm kind of going back a little to Howie's talk, how much of what we're doing is in some ways going against the stream of the main culture here. And even now it's a lot different from 30 years ago, but still going against the mainstream. And there, that sense of um, the cultural support has the effect of giving me, and I know it's not only me, Uh, It's like, oh, you can relax into your practice with a sense of greater faith, faith in the terms of confidence. You know, this isn't just some new age, airy-fairy thing. You know, people have been doing it for ages and somehow it works. So it just gives a little more sense of, okay, let me keep going on those rare occasions when it gets a little tough. (laughs) So I want to talk tonight about um, right attitude or wise attitude in practice. It's a little bit moving off of Howie's talk last night. And uh, it's coming out of, in the last year, I had the chance to sit two short retreats, just like 10-day retreats with two different teachers. One was Ajahn Sumedho here. One was a Burmese teacher in Burma. And very different teachers, very different techniques. But both of them... Their main emphasis in how they talk about practice is to start practice with right attitude before you even worry about the technique. So what does that mean? Of course, I'll give you my spin on what it means. In talking about right attitude, what I'm really mixing together is our sincere motivation The attitude is kind of the intention, our motivation, our willingness to do, why we're doing it, but supported by wise discernment, supported by wisdom. So the right attitude that we bring to our practice, whatever aspect of practice, whatever technique we're doing, is this sincere motivation held in kind of the crucible of wisdom. Sure, not total wisdom, but at least some beginning wisdom. Because 
with all the will in the world, with the total sincerity of motivation, if we don't know what the heck we're doing and we don't really understand things as they are, the choices we make may not be grounded in reality and may not serve us so well. So motivation in terms of practice, in terms of life, our choices, our intentions, need to be guided by some wise discernment, seeing clearly things as they are, ourselves as we are, the world as it is. And of course, this is really the beginning and the ending of our whole path of practice, seeing things as they are with open-hearted, total presence and acceptance enables us to live in harmony with things as they are. I'm sure most of you know the story of the Buddha when he first became the Buddha, right? After all his hard practice, when he awoke under the Bodhi tree and was disinclined to teach. Because in a way, he said, you know, people aren't going to understand And it would really be worrisome and bothersome to go around and nobody's going to get it anyway. But when he was persuaded to survey the world, all the people in the world, with his eye of wisdom, you know, he could just kind of basically read what was in all of the people's minds. What moved him to the compassion to spend his life teaching was, was really seeing this, what I'm just talking about, that... Deep in our hearts, everybody wants to be happy. So that's kind of our, our unifying motivation as human beings. We want to be happy. And what moved him to compassion, so it said in the texts, was by seeing how with our, the best will in the world, most everyone goes about their whole life trying to be happy, doing just the things that keep them spinning in confusion and suffering. Because we don't really understand the nature of suffering, the nature of confusion, and the nature of peace or happiness, as the Buddha spoke about happiness. And so he was motivated to teach. So when I'm talking about bringing this wise attitude, some understanding to our practice, to our lives. I'm directly speaking to this, to our really sincere intentions to do what's good for our own happiness. And probably most, if not everyone here, is also in some way deeply committed to the happiness of others, or at least not, you know, causing unhappiness to others. But without understanding ourselves, without understanding what's true, we're going to keep getting caught in confusion and suffering. But basically, the habits of our mind that we think are going to bring us happiness don't work. It's not that they're bad, they just don't work. And don't believe me that they don't work. Check and see for yourselves. I mean, I'm sure you already know you wouldn't be here, sitting here for a month, for two months, if our other uh, ways of bringing ease and happiness to ourselves worked, unless you just love 
which some people do, really some people do, just love to come here and sit and watch their minds. There are some people like that. (laughs) Most of us, how we ended up being up here, we just liked it so much that finally people just go talk about it, you know. So, an example, you know, it's in the world, in ourselves. I read a couple, I don't know when it was, last year, the year before, a small article in the International Herald Tribune about um, Russia in a couple of years ago, where whoever wrote the article was reporting on some opinion polls that had been taken in Russia about forms of government, democracy versus totalitarianism, or maybe they didn't use that word, but versus, you know, more control. And just kind of saying that Russians didn't necessarily want democracy. And that's okay, whatever. But what was interesting to me was that among the questions asked was, if Stalin were running for president again, would you vote for him? Now, it's no longer a secret in Russia about how Stalin, you know, threw 20 million uh, Russian people into the prison camps and... um, a great deal, a great many of those were murdered or died in those camps. This is no longer a secret. So even knowing that, 26% of people said yes, they would vote for Stalin if he were running again. And another 19% or something said, I'm not sure, probably I wouldn't. It's amazing to me. Just a sense of, somehow the sense of, on this I'm projecting, the sense of security and some kind of order would bring me more happiness, you know, than terror. It's okay if there's terror, mass terror, as long as there's order. Okay, that's an extreme example. But it's not that extreme. It's not that extreme. It's the same way our minds are working. So remember last night how he was talking about the habits of our mind and going against the stream. What is it that we need to know, really need to know, to begin to be able to bring wise attitude to our practice, to our life, to begin to move out of this endless cycle of trying to make ourselves happy by increasing our confusion. That's samsara, basically. The cycle of wanting and getting and wanting and getting and wanting and not getting and wanting and not getting and on and on and becoming. It's exhausting. And even if we only think of one life, it's exhausting. Never mind if we go into the Buddhist cosmology of eons. Once I was talking to my aunt many years ago. She's been dead a long time. And we were close she was a Christian, not fundamentalist, but real Christian, and she had been unhappy for the, maybe the last, since my uncle died, maybe the last 20 years of her life. She was pretty unhappy. And she was asking me, somehow we got into rebirth, and she was asking me to explain it. So I was explaining it, you know, how it works, and she just said, this huge sigh, and she said, if I thought that were true, I couldn't bear it. I couldn't bear, you know, to think of keeping going like this. It's really, it was so poignant. So the thing is, really the thing is, the shift from samsara to freedom is just like that. Just for a moment, not forever, but just for a moment. 
just a foreground background shift. It's not about eons and eons and eons of this, you know, dreadful going like that. That's what our practice is about. That's what wise attitude serves to help our awareness open into. That's what I want to talk about. So what do we need to know? What are the habits that we get lost in? Bhikkhu Bodhi, the American Theravada monk who's probably one one of the most foremost translators of the Pali text into English these days, He said, Remember that the Buddha's teaching goes against the current of one's habitual assumptions and attitudes. Back to what Howie was saying, this flow goes against the current. After all, most of our habits revolve around the desire to enjoy pleasure, to avoid pain, and to preserve the illusion that the universe centers around our individual self. I want to read that again, and I just want you to notice over the next days if this is true or not for you. Most of our habits revolve around the desire to enjoy pleasure, to avoid pain, and to preserve the illusion that the universe centers around our individual self. And if that's true for you, the question then becomes, so what? What's wrong with that? And again, the Buddha wasn't, and we're not, up here to say, this is right, this is wrong, this is shameful. It's like, what brings suffering? And what ends suffering? What works? Do these habits work? Of course, I'm going to say no. That's what I'm here to say. And why, to some extent. But really everything I'm saying, any of us are saying, is hopefully just to point you back to your own experience and see what's really true. Because none of this works as an intellectual concept. I mean, you know, it might be nice or not, whatever, but that's not going to free us. It's really when we so deeply go, oh, this really isn't working. It doesn't make sense that something lets go. That right attitude begins to come in. So, what is it we need to know to shift this? You know, the Buddha famously said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering or dukkha and its end. Although we have a friend that says that's really two things. But anyway, that's one, you know, he wouldn't get into metaphysical questions. He said, I'm teaching suffering and the end of suffering. Dukkha, better, better word, suffering's too limited. And, you know, you might wonder, why does he have to teach dukkha? You think we know dukkha. I mean, that's why we're here practicing. We want to know about the end of it. But in my experience, if we really knew the ramifications of dukkha and its end, if we really understood dukkha, there would be no clinging we wouldn't be keeping on in this cycle. So the Buddha's just a little shorthand of his teaching that is, of course, our friends, the Four Noble Truths. And dukkha, in this case, being three aspects. Understanding in our cells, in our bones, the impermanence of all conditioned things, physical, mental, 
any experience, anything, internally, externally, changes. When the conditions that bring it together go away, it falls apart. And that's just how it is. The fact that there's dukkha-dukkha, there's just pain. If you have a body, sometime, somewhere, it's going to hurt. I mean, it seems obvious. It seems obvious. How much of our time do we spend fighting that? If we have a body, it's not only going to hurt, it's going to get sick, it's going to get old. We all know that. (laughs) But we don't really. It's, It's amazing how much we don't. And the second truth, that the cause of our I don't like the word suffering, anguish, discontent, dis-ease, isn't the fact that difficult things happen, that the body starts starts hurting, that everything falls apart, that there's nothing we can rely on. (laughs) None of that's the, the reason for our suffering. It's because of the way our hearts and minds react, respond to the first truth. Basically, the word they say is because of clinging. We cling. But I, I find it's, in me, the way I look at it, it's more helpful to think that the real anguish, the cause of our dis-ease, and what brings us to practice, is the way the mind and heart reacts or responds in the face of things not being the way we want them to be or the way we think they should be. We hold on. We get aversive. We just deny anything's going on at all. We stick our head in the sand. We distract ourselves. That's what the Buddha saw when he said, everyone wants to be happy, but does just the things that keep them suffering. The way we respond to the first noble truth. And the third truth, of course, being that with wise discernment, seeing things the way they are, clear seeing. There's an ending to this anguish of heart and mind that the craving, the clinging, the trying to make things different or hold on or deny, it just lets go. Not as an act of will, but because clinging, when we see things the way they are, just doesn't make sense. And we don't have to talk ourselves out of it. That doesn't work, does it? Have you tried to talk yourself out of wanting or talk yourself out of aversion? I'm not really upset. It's really okay. Yeah? <laughs> it just doesn't really work. It slips around from behind and clobbers you. But in the moment when we really see, oh, it's just going away. The clinging also just evaporates. And in that moment, there's a moment of peace. Ah, just this. That's a moment of freedom. It's a moment of cessation, suffering, cessation of clinging. That's the moment that's just turning like this. It's not so far away. But mostly, we're so entranced by our habits, so habituated to responding that way, that we're looking through those habits, those colorings of mind, of whatever's happening. We don't even know what's going on. Struggle, struggle, struggle. And so that's why there's a path. That's why there's the fourth truth, which is the path of practice, the path of uh, non-harming conduct, of 
uh, samadhi, concentration and mindfulness and effort, and of wisdom, of clear seeing. But I really like the way Ajahn Sumedho described, he kind of summed the whole path, the whole Eightfold Path up in one word, awareness. And that's the way, I'd like to say, to suggest that we can approach this path throughout our practice here, whatever particular technique of practice each of you may be cultivating. Whether we're staying really closely to the breath at the nostrils, whether you're working with the breath at the abdomen, whether you're open in choiceless awareness, whether you're doing walking meditation, whether you're doing metta meditation. All the techniques are useful in terms of recognizing the truth of things when held, held in the, the crucible of wise attitude. And so that's what I want to talk about, what that is. It begins by seeing these habits of our mind and heart without judgment, without criticism. That's wise attitude. Just seeing what is in the space of awareness without adding anything extra, without adding criticism, without adding blame, without adding me, me, me. Just like this. So it begins by seeing, recognizing the habits, and it'll be more than once or twice. And in that moment of recognizing, we've stepped out of identifying and stepped into, oh, greed is like this. Aversion is like this. In that moment, what's being fed in the mind stream is the mindfulness, the awareness, awareness of greed. When we don't notice that, oh my God, I'm so greedy. I don't know what's the matter with me. I'm the most greedy person who ever lived. What's being fed is aversion to the greed, identification. You don't have to get rid of the greed. It's just, oh, greed is like this. That's all. That's the movement from identification, from being lost in the delusion of the habit, to awareness, to mindfulness, to clear seeing. It's just for a moment, just for a second. That's okay. That's a moment of purification of mind and heart. That's really what the practice is about. Once we're able to be present, just momentarily, but more and more moments in that way, All the techniques are useful to us. Without that sense of just clear seeing, accepting, we can take any technique, turn it on its head, and turn it into a complete, you know, ego trip and suffer. And you'll know you're doing that. You'll know your mind's doing that because you'll be suffering. That's always the tip-off. It's very useful in that way. So... This is the way Ayakema describes uh, dukkha. We're looking for something other than what we have. This alone is dukkha. It means there's an emptiness within which wants to be filled. Unless we see this quite clearly, we always try to fill this void from outside through our sense contacts. But it can't be done this way. Only when we realize we must fulfill ourselves from within can we really begin to take the spiritual path. I would say that sense of filling the void, what tricks us is that it feels like the sense contact 
fills it, but it's just for such a quick second. And then we don't notice that it didn't really do it because we can move to another and move to another and move to another and move to another, and that's samsara. When we turn around and go, oh, what's going on here? That's the movement from samsara to taking up the spiritual path in the way Ayakema talks about it. And the other interesting thing about the Buddha's awakening, about the way he talks about it, and this is how Ayakema puts it, in that moment of freedom, suffering isn't going to go away. The dukkha doesn't go away. The one who suffers is going to go away. Just for a moment, and don't think about that. (laughs) The more we think about it, we just get all knotted up in our mind, and me, me, me gets really strong feeling. Just let it go. But notice those moments when there's just, oh, it's like this. Later, you can think, oh, there was no me there then. There was no, yes, there was no me there. Now there is, but at the moment, you don't really notice anything. It's just this, a step, a sound, feeling of greed, heat, whatever it is, just simple, basic. That's a moment of really purity of consciousness. It's no big fireworks. It's mostly not what we think we're looking for because these habits of our mind are so ingrained in most of us, I wouldn't speak for everybody, but in most of us, they're so ingrained, this wanting to enjoy the pleasant, avoid the difficult, the painful, the unpleasant, and to think that everything revolves around me. It's so ingrained that without even knowing they're there, that's how we assess the world, and that's often the motivation behind our actions. And we come to practice. I mean, it's not a different mind, is it? It's the same. So we can get so um, looking to sense contact, as Ayakema said, to fill that seeming void, that feeling of emptiness. We, without realizing we're even doing it, and very subtly, you know, it can transfer to our practice. Again, when that's happening, you'll know it sooner or later because there'll be that sense of glitch, you know, the sense of what's wrong with my practice, it isn't working. You know, we're either looking very subtly, and sometimes it's not so subtle, but for the pleasant experience, for the experience that matches something we've heard or read or experienced before, or we think it'll be cool, because then that gives, not only is it pleasant, it fills my sense of myself of finally getting somewhere on this endless path. Avoiding the unpleasant or evaluating the worth of almost all of our experience by whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. And when you start, just just notice how much we do this. And I talk about this all the time, all the time. There's no way my conscious mind can say it doesn't know this. But over and over, when I get quiet, I'm going through practice, or in daily life too, of course, but in practice where you can really notice more minutely you know, the workings of the mind, I'll find it somehow slipped in that I started to very kind of subliminally assess what's going on. Well, this can't be right because it doesn't feel good. 
And it's, it's rare that someone who's had, let's just take sitting since we're talking about practice, who's had a sitting that really feels good, comes in and says, you know, my practice isn't going well. <laughs> it's more common when you've had an experience that just feels like crap. And your mind was reactive. But you were aware. You were really aware of all of this. But it's still really more common to come in and report on that and go, it's just, after all this time, I should be past this. It's going nowhere. And we'll say, yeah, but you're really describing it well. It shows you were mindful. And really, really, you go out and think, oh, my God, they're just giving me a sop, you know, can't they? <laughs> they are useful. They train them to say this, you know. That's garbage, garbage. You don't believe it, do you, for a minute? We're so, so caught in this. But, you know, the Buddha's awakening, he didn't awaken. His awakening didn't change his world. You know, when he spent the 45 years teaching, he still had a body. There's places in the suttas where he had backaches, where he had headaches. He died from eating bad food. You know, he, uh, his kinspeople went to war over water rights. He, one of his cousins tried to split the sangha and kill him. He had endless, you know, dukkha with all the monks and nuns and trying to organize an organization. We all know how that is. (laughs) And he had to spend 45 years like this. And all he wanted to do, really, was just go off and hang out in the bliss of Nibbana. He could have done that. So he's walking up and down India barefoot, you know, dealing with all these people. (laughs) That was his life. It didn't change the world. So what do we expect? <laughs> what do we think is going to happen? I'm mean, kind of joking, but I ask myself that sometimes because there's always something lurking back there, subliminal, that I really think it's going to be like. It rarely includes pain or people not liking me or my personality. Somehow my personality should completely morph, you know, into beatific. <laughs> Caught him, caught him. This is what we have to live with behind the scenes here. <laughs> Not beatific, no. I've sort of given that one up. Ajahn Sumedho had a great line. He said, you know, it's consciousness that's pure. We're not here. Our personalities aren't going to get purified. We're not really here to purify our personalities. That's like a sideline, you know, but that's not what we're here for. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> yes. So these habits, these reactions. It's not that we're stupid, you know. It's not that if we just paid a little bit of attention, we could see through them. They're so ingrained. As you know, most of you know, the way the Buddha described our moment-to-moment experience of consciousness, very precise, where in any moment of sense awareness, whether, say, take seeing, you need an eye organ that's working, 
an, a visual object. And when they come together and there's a moment of consciousness, there's a moment of seeing, right? If my eyes closed, there wouldn't be seeing. If I'm asleep or completely, your consciousness is completely gone somewhere else, there's no seeing. When those three come together, that's called contact, a moment of seeing or hearing or feeling with the body, thinking in the mind or anything. In that moment, it arises together with a subtle sensation, which is mental, really, of its being pleasant or unpleasant or neither one. Mostly we don't notice that. And when we don't notice, the tendency, the habit, is that the pleasant we start leaning into, wanting. And that's where that evaluation, yeah, this is good, this is right, give me more. The unpleasant, we may not notice it's unpleasant, but ever so slightly or not so slightly, we lean away. That can turn into aversion, I don't want this, this is wrong, this is bad, the whole nine yards, and then wanting something else. And under that all, and frankly, in my experience, by far the most seductive and entrancing and engaging of all the the habits of mind is that it's all about me. Me, me. I'm the center of all of it. Sogni Rinpoche gave a great example in one of his books about this. He said in, in Tibet, when they're building a house, they just... Before they lay the foundation, they start with a center point where it's going to be, and they take a a rope, you know, like the length of of the frame of the house, and they measure from that point out all around to get the, the kind of the footprint for the foundation. And he said, and that's what it's like, this sense of me. We start from this sense of me, not an idea, this felt sense of me here now, he says, and from that measure everything. So just, I like that a lot. Just notice, not with judgment, just notice. In the noticing is the wise discernment, the clear seeing. But if you can do it with a sense of humor, it's a riot. I mean, it just cracks me up. Watch the mind. You're going down and there's, you know, somebody walks by way down there and they trip. First thought, glad that wasn't me. You know? There's a loud sound somewhere. Well, don't they know that's ruining? How could they let that happen here when I came all this way to meditate? <laughs> just anything. Bird call. The deer over there. There's a moment just of pure appreciation. And wow, I'm seeing these deer. <laughs> Maybe it'll be like Bambi will come over. and I'm really, you know, nature girl. And I just... <laughs> just watch it. It really, really helps to laugh because if you're going to get reactive to it, you're really, you're going to be suffering a lot. The moment we're watching it, we're not being it anymore. Again, it's this sense of, oh, I'm nature girl, feels like this. (laughs) Try it. We can do that with anything, anything. Awareness can be aware, mindfulness can be mindful of anything. Sometimes the energy of mindfulness isn't as strong as the energy of the habit, true. So we don't even recognize, say, aversions going on for a while. But at any point, oh, aversion, 
That's why everybody looks so horribly, dreadfully ugly today. <laughs> oh, they didn't all get up and decide, you know, to look their worst. It could possibly be aversion. <laughs> Turn around, aversion is like this. Oh, that's aversion. Okay, the object of mindfulness at that moment has moved from breath or walking or whatever to aversion. And awareness doesn't care what's the object. Any object, sight, sound, taste, smell, touch, mind, any object is a doorway to mindfulness, to the purity of consciousness, of awareness. Mostly, our habit of focusing on objects for gratification, and we also take that into practice, we end up focusing on, well, we're supposed to focus on the breath, but we do it in a way that isn't with wise attitude, with wanting, with wanting it to fulfill us with some kind of, and I'll talk about that in a minute. We get so focused on getting it right. How many breaths? How precise is the breath? How many sensations in the lifting? If I get more, I'm doing it better. And we, get, we do that. We're so focused on the object, we don't notice the mind that's noticing the object. And this is the place of potential ease and freedom, turning around and noticing the mind that's noticing. But these habits happen so fast that we get really entranced by them. And so practice is to help us shift. Shift the habit, shift our interest from object and self-referencing to the mind itself to mindfulness itself, to awareness itself. So that basically, we're moving towards getting more interested in the mindfulness, just in knowing what's happening and being with what's happening, whatever it is. That's like more interesting to us. That's more fulfilling. That's more peaceful than owning or disliking or what we think about anything, all our reactions. You know, doesn't it start to get boring? No? It's not boring yet. I mean, I'm really sick of myself. I don't know about you guys. It's like, how many new thoughts? And if you're still having new thoughts, check in in a week, you know. How many really useful, new, and important thoughts are coming up? How many new reactions? Is it fulfilling, really, when we look at it? And I'm not advocating aversion. I'm just advocating that, ah, it's not doing it. Now, knowing whatever's happening is fantastic. Knowing, you don't get tired of knowing, of awareness. It's pure, it's clean, it's not colored by whatever we're aware of. It doesn't care. And that is so liberating, just for a moment. Remember Howie's quotation? It's the famous quotation. Everyone always uses this quotation but it fits what I'm saying. Remember he read it last night, luminous is this mind brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it, the attachments, the aversions, the sense of self. This, well, this is Gilstrom, unlearned people, but people who haven't practiced or looked at the mind, do not really understand, and so they do not cultivate the mind. Luminous is this mind brightly shining, And it is free of the attachments that visit it. 
This the noble follower of the way really understands. So for them there is cultivation of the mind. This isn't sequential. This is both at the same time. Luminous is the mind brightly shining and it's colored by the attachments that visit it. At the same time, it is free of the attachments that visit it. When we're focused in on the attachments, our observations, our sense of self, that's what we notice. That's what we're entranced by. And we don't notice the luminous quality, just that pure clarity, ability to know. We just don't notice that because it's not a thing. It's not a much more entranced by, I don't like that tree. It's a little crooked. I don't like the way he walks. I don't like, I want this. Oh, wouldn't that be great if I could just really get into that third jhana? I'd really be getting somewhere. (laughs) Luminous, pure, empty awareness. That's not so exciting, is it? When the Buddha said, you know, the sublime peace has been discovered by me, the Tathagata, namely liberation through non-clinging. Can you even imagine that? I mean, is that like a state you can imagine? Liberation through non-clinging? I can't. Because it's, it's not a thing. It's not a state. It's not some end state we can reach and hold on to. It's just this moment by moment, one moment at a time, the mind that doesn't grip around or be entranced by our reactions. In that openness, that non-clinging, just for that moment, the purity of consciousness is recognizable. And so when we talk about cultivation of the mind, it's not like consciousness gets more pure. It's more that we recognize more and more that it's not even a quality, just that. We just recognize more and more. And mindfulness is our tool. Mindfulness is our vehicle and mindfulness in each moment that mindfulness is there is actually a manifestation of that luminous purity of consciousness. We don't have to get somewhere else. We just turn our attention back into the mindfulness itself. Ajahn Sumedho said that consciousness is the doorway to liberation. Don't think about it. Because as soon as we think it's limited by our mind, which can only think of things and space and experiences we've had and things we've read and it's just thoughts but you don't have to stop thinking either what could that mean consciousness consciousness is the doorway to liberation i want to understand that wanting is like this that's all i'm wanting that's what's coloring the attention right now wanting so we learn to do our practice with sincerity, with commitment, feeling the sensations of the breath at the rise and fall or at the nose, for example, wholeheartedly, with full commitment just in this moment. And from time to time, we turn around and just notice 
the quality of what's going on in the mind that's observing. This is where we begin to bring in right attitude. Right attitude allows us to notice things as they are. And as soon as we're noticing things as they are, even in just a moment, that purity of consciousness is noticeable again. Because it's only hidden from us when we're caught up in the wanting, in the aversion, in the self-referencing. It's not that it went anywhere, but we just don't notice it. So this is one teacher said, in terms of right attitude, in terms of how we practice, you're not trying to make things turn out the way you want them to happen. And this is in our practice. You're trying to know what is happening as it is. Whether that's this half breath, whether it's the step, whether it's the sense of frustration, whether it's confusion, you're just trying to know what's happening as it is. When we want this or that to happen, thinking things should be this way or that way, that's expectation. And expectations create anxiety and can lead to aversion and wanting. Now, if we think, okay, how can I not have expectation? You don't have to do that. Oh, expectation is like this. And right there, there's the movement from expectation to mindfulness. That purity of mindfulness, Upandita, Saira Upandita used to say a lot, that a moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom. Because mindfulness is that simple attention, knowing what is, without adding wanting, without adding aversion, without adding stories. And just, oh, aversion is like this. Expectation is like this. Grief feels like this. Vibrating, you don't even know the word for it, is like this. The breath in this moment is like this. Wanting it better is like this. Sleepiness is like this. Hating everything and everybody is like this. (laughs) There's nothing. Mindfulness can't know. A moment of freedom because whatever the object or subject of the mindfulness is, doesn't matter. That moment of pure mindfulness is free from the attachment, the delusion of aversion, the delusion of self-referencing, of identification. That's really that moment of peace and freedom. It's not the final liberation, the sure heart's release. But it's a moment, an intimation. And it's real, it's true, and I think it's really important that just that we begin to really notice, um, how to say, I want to say value. I don't mean hold on to, I don't mean build a story of I'm doing really great around it. But to pay more attention when there are these, just these moments of simple presence happen. All you have to do, oh, like that. Not go build a whole story in five pages in the journal. Just uh, <laughs> notice what it feels like. Notice how it changes. Notice how wanting or aversion or self-story comes back in. Not with judgment just to see how it happens. What's the trigger? What starts the pattern up again? And then how? Oh, yeah, it's like this. So that what happens is we really begin and deepen, and I think our whole life can be a deepening, in confidence 
in the power of mindfulness, in the purity and ubiquitous availability of the, the purity of consciousness. It's always available. Sometimes we can't get there. We can't find it. We can't think of it. We can't even remember it. We think we made the whole thing up. And a lot of times that's what people experience in, in, in turning to this, this mindfulness, just this awareness of whatever. Oh, it's like this. And practicing with your breath. With metta, you can do the same thing. With choiceless awareness, with whatever way you're practicing. Just noticing the attitude of the mind that's observing. A real kind of, I don't know, it can really start to have a sense of, it shifts something for me. I don't know what. You know, I don't want to say then you're free forever, you're liberated, you know, not. But something really shifts. But it's so not measurable. You know, it's not measurable on a chart of stages of insight. It's not measurable really on anything. That it's really easy, then or later, for the doubting mind to come in and go, no, I made that up. I was making that all up. It's not, you know, I couldn't hold on to it. It's not bells and whistles. I didn't get a certificate. Nobody verified. I, I must have been making it up. It's not here now. And so I just, I just, I really urge you to find that place of sincere motivation and just a sense of, of trust and faith in your own experience. Not in anything I said, not even in anything the Buddha said or that you've read, but just seeing for yourself with interest, with honesty, with the real purity of your intention to practice for your own liberation, for your own happiness, for the happiness and well-being of others. Trust that motivation. Yeah, we won't always do the wise thing because it's not always supported by wise attitude and wisdom. But it is a lot. And every time, every time there's just a moment of that purity of mindfulness, not only are we, you know, having a sense of being able to re-recognize, to have faith in it more, it's also a moment of purifying our old habits. Because when we're really mindful, just for that moment, mindful of greed, Greed is not being fed in the mind at that moment. The Buddha has a... He talks a lot in terms of looking at your mind, looking at what you say and do and think, your actions, and not so much looking at the actions themselves, but at what's being fed, what qualities are being fed in the mind, what qualities are being increased, what qualities are being starved. I like that because, to me, it's very pragmatic and very helpful. So take an example of working with the breath here. Very sincere. You're really dedicated. You're really trying to cultivate right effort. When you notice you're off, you come back. You're trying not to judge. You come back. You're really trying to be precise. You're working, 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 working. And slowly, (laughs) that's how it starts to get. But we don't turn to look back at the mind. It's like, we can, let me see the breath more clearly. It was clearer yesterday. Let me get it clearer. And, you know, we think we're really working with, with, with clear motivation and wise intention. But what's being fed? If you turn around and look, it's not a big secret, you know. <laughs> what's being fed is either incredible tension, frustration, 
self-hatred, you know, take your pick, whatever your particular pattern is. And then on top of that, we go, oh, my God, I'm really not doing it right because you're supposed to be relaxed. And if I was concentrated, I'd be happy. I am not happy, so I'm really <laughs> doing it wrong. That, then you're really feeding aversion even more. Wise attitude is, oh, aversion is like this. Who cares if you're feeling the breath? You're noticing aversion. That's the practice. That's mindfulness. It takes a huge burden off, doesn't it? All you have to do is notice what's happening. You don't have to get it right. Oh, aversion, like this. Now, in that moment of mindfulness, aversion is no longer being fed. Mindfulness is being fed. Aversion is being starved, to use the Buddhist terminology. And as Howie said, how much time we've practiced our habits over just one lifetime. But how many moments of mindfulness are there? I mean, it's not like one-to-one, okay? Don't even go there. But <laughs> we couldn't count it up anyway. But it's really purifying our habits of mind, that ability to say, oh, look at that, me, me, me. Ha-ha, isn't that? Me feels like this. Nowhere to go. Just like this. It's so simple that we can't really believe it. We tend not to trust it. I just want to beg you to let yourself trust it. That's all. That's all. And then from that attitude, we can do any form of practice. Come back and be with the breath, not to get somewhere, not to get concentrated, not to be a better meditator, but simply to notice what's happening right now in this breath. Why? Just because it's so much happier to just be with knowing what's happening than in all this other stuff that we get that we like it better. We like to come back better. It's, it becomes our refuge. And as that happens more and more, the trust naturally grows more and more. And whatever goes on in our practice may be easier, harder, whatever, but on some level it just doesn't matter because awareness becomes our refuge. More and more and more, deeper and deeper. On retreat, off retreat. And this is really the, what wise attitude is about. So let's just sit quietly for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.